It's Costume Drama Rewind with your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Jett. We're watching Gosford Park, a.k.a. Downton Abbey Murder Prequel. It came out in 2001, directed by Robert Altman, written by Gillian Fellows, and stars every single well-known British actor like Helen Mirren, Michael Gambon, Kelly MacDonald, Clive Owen, Charles Dance, Maggie Smith, Richard E. Grant, Stephen Fry, and Kristen Scott Thomas. And then Laura dropped over from exhaustion. <laughs> First, a quick synopsis. Just like in the beginning of Clue, a number of cars descend on a country estate for a visit. Michael Gambon and his wife, Kristen Scott Thomas, are hosting their family and a few friends for a weekend stay complete with a shooting party. Drama abounds. Upstairs, Kristen Scott Thomas's sisters, their husbands, and their aunt, the Dowager Countess Maggie Smith, are all trying to wring more money out of Michael Gambon. One of the guests, Ivor Novello, is an actor, and he's brought a Hollywood friend, Mr. Weissman, who's hoping to do research on English country houses for an upcoming film, Charlie Chan in London. Downstairs, housemaid Emily Watson takes Mel Kelly MacDonald, Maggie Smith's relatively new lady's maid, under her wing to show her how things run during house parties, including mundane things like where to do the laundry, and less mundane things like how to fend off the unwelcome advances of Ryan Philippe, who plays a valet with a dubious Scottish accent who gives pretty much everyone the creeps. More than an hour into the movie, when everyone's personal dramas and grievances are on the table and things have gotten incredibly tense and awkward, Michael Gambon, who has just been exposed in front of the entire party to be sleeping with housemaid Emily Watson, is found dead. Dun, dun, dun. At first, it's not clear how. It soon becomes apparent that he has been both stabbed and poisoned. Always an overachiever, that one. <laughs> Stephen Fry shows up, playing a bumbling, overly confident detective who ignores every single clue and manages to compromise half of the evidence. Dubiously Scottish Ryan Philippe turns out to be an actor in disguise researching a role who pretty much everyone hates from that point on, and it also turns out that pretty much everyone benefits in some way from Michael Gambon's death. Eventually, everyone is allowed to leave after Stephen Fry interviews most of the guests, but confidently refuses to interview the servants because he believes that none of them possibly could have had any motivation to kill Michael Gambon. Kelly MacDonald figures out that Clive Owen, valet to one of Kristen Scott Thomas's brothers-in-law, is the one who stabbed Michael Gambon. He reveals to her that he's the illegitimate son of Michael Gambon, who owned a factory and had a penchant for sexually assaulting his female employees and then dumping any resulting children at an orphanage. Kelly then figures out that Helen Mirren, the housekeeper, is Clive Owen's mother, who's not seen her son since his infancy, but recognizes him when he shows up, realizes what he has planned, and decides to poison Michael Gambon first so that her son can't be held liable for a murder charge for the stabbing. Everyone sort of quietly agrees not to tell anyone anything, and everyone goes their separate ways, not at all happily. I think it's important to point out here that I just can't keep any of the characters straight, so we are not actually suggesting that Helen Mirren is Clive Owen's real mother, or that she has murdered anybody. Oh. She's actually killed again in a movie called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, and in that movie, she kills Michael Gambon. Maybe Helen Mirren is like Robert Todd Lincoln. I'll explain that someday. <laughs> anyway, Laura, what were your first impressions? Well, I've seen this movie three times, and I thoroughly enjoy it. My goal in life is to solve a murder at an English country house, so definitely up my alley, and I am the one who recommended that we watch this. I saw Gosford way before Downton Abbey came out, but when I first watched the show, I was definitely like, I've seen this before, and it turns out that originally Downton Abbey was supposed to be a spin-off, 
part of the expanded Gosford Park universe, if you will. I'd like to make the helpful suggestion, though, that Downton Abbey was in sore need of more murders, and not just the half-baked, Mr. Bates might not be a murderer, but Anna definitely goes to jail stuff. So this movie was all new to me. I have watched Downton enough times that I can mouth the lines along with the characters. But I skipped over this entire movie. I'm not completely sure I realized it existed until Laura brought it up, and what I'd expected was very different from what I got. Downton is fundamentally a show about people trying really hard to be decent to one another. Gosford Park, to put it mildly, is not that. A review that I read in the New York Times calls Gosford Park, quote, full of baronial splendor and hatefulness, which feels extremely accurate to me and also feels like it could be Laura's life motto. Also accurate. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. The most fascinating thing about this movie, other than the stellar cast, is just how much about British society in the 30s, the impact of World War I, and just where the country is heading, is all whispered throughout the movie, not shouted. I do feel like a lot of the role of Kelly MacDonald as the Countess's new maid is to be the character that everyone explains things to as a stand-in for the audience, and usually I'm annoyed by that trope, but it's so subtly done here that I didn't mind it and thought it worked well. The main theme of this movie is the British class system, and additionally, Julian Fellows shows disruptions to it that were happening after World War I. We get lots of examples all throughout. For example, in one scene where Stephen Fry, who plays the detective, is trying to serve tea to Kristen Scott Thomas while he interviews her, she fusses at him for putting milk first in her tea. Doing that was considered a mark of being lower class. The lower classes couldn't afford better quality teacups, so they had to put in the colder milk first so the cups that weren't made as well wouldn't crack from the heat of the tea. There's also a little jab that one of the maids makes about how one of their guest's gowns has machine-made lace and the horror, and how it's just not as good as handmade, and you can always tell. So this is definitely a class distinction. It's also an expression of what's known as the arts and crafts movement, which advocated for a traditional craftsmanship as sort of a counter-revolution to the Industrial Revolution. That movement was starting to ebb by the 1930s, but it's clearly clinging on here as one little detail to subtly divide between the upper classes and the aristocracy and the nouveau riche. And it's interesting that even the servants are hyper-aware of those distinctions. So Michael Gambon might be full of money, but he is an industrialist and he had to make his fortune. Kristen Scott Thomas and her family members make sure to rub this in. As any Downton Abbey fan knows, great households found it extremely difficult to keep up their estates after World War I. Housekeeper Helen Mirren even says to the guest servants, who are much younger and bewildered about the formality and bureaucracy downstairs, that we keep the old ways. Ironically, the old ways at Gosford Park are only able to be kept up because the owner wasn't originally an aristocrat, but instead worked for his money. To look more on a broader scale about how society is changing, the UK wasn't the only country that was experiencing social changes. You saw throughout Europe and the US cafe society, the mixing of elites, the nouveau riche, and artistic types in social settings, particularly various chic cafes, nightclubs, and bars. This sort of socializing and entertaining had started before World War I was over, but in New York it hit its height in the 30s, where if you went to establishments like El Morocco or the Stork Club, you'd see movie stars, Broadway actors, high society types, debutantes like Brenda Diana Duff Frazier, the most famous debutante from the 30s, all partying. 
So Maggie Smith's acerbic reaction to being forced to socialize with actors is probably pretty accurate, while noble men who kept actresses and dancers as mistresses, like Edward VII's affair with actress Lily Langtree, had been tolerated all throughout British history up to this point, actually including actors as equals in social events, was for many a newer concept. But as depicted by the poor relation Claude Blakely, who had the machine made lace, with her fascination with Ivor Novello's career, the younger set found actors glamorous. And speaking of Ivor Novello, played by Jeremy Northam here, he was a real and famous British actor, screenwriter, and playwright. He acted both in films and on stage. Some of his films include the Hitchcock silent film, The Lodger, in 1927, as well as another speaky film production of The Lodger by a different director in 1932, and a film version of Noel Coward's The Vortex in 1928. He was also a composer, and the music performed in the movie was written by him. He wrote one of his most famous songs, Keep the Home Fires Burning, during World War One. Julian Fellows has probably never had a character for whom he enjoy or an actor for whom he enjoys writing as much as Maggie Smith, and she lets off one of her famous bon mots when she expresses sympathy to Novello that the lodger was a flop. It is a lodger. It is a weekend. Actually, while it needed some minor reworking before it hit theaters, it was actually considered a commercial success, and today is acknowledged as having defined the beginnings of the thriller genre, incorporating a few elements that would become Hitchcock's signatures. So it's not really clear if the Countess really thought the film was a failure, if she just didn't fully understand the emerging genre, or if she's being a little catty. My money is on at least two of the three. Whether it's Down Abbey, Gosford Park, or Harry Potter... I think it's safe to say that Maggie Smith is always catty. Uh. <sighs> Another element of prejudice we see through the movie is uh, some of the characters indicating their discrimination against Bob Balaban, who plays the Hollywood producer Morris Weissman, not by making any comments per se, but by making sure to mention his name, Weissman, in conversation with him to show that they see him as being the odd one out. Morris Weissman definitely stands out. He's American, a Hollywood mogul, not accustomed to British manners, he's hiding his homosexuality, and he's also Jewish. And a pescatarian. <sighs> While there have been examples of anti-Semitism through a lot of British history, I found it interesting that just one month before the movie takes place, and it's supposed to occur in November 1932, Oswald Mosley, a British politician and a brother-in-law to the author Nancy Mitford, formed the British Union of Fascists. This party entertained support from several members of the aristocracy, and taking cues from Hitler's political activities, began ramping up their anti-Semitic beliefs publicly by the mid-30s. For a look at Nancy Mitford's thoughts on fascism, read Wigs on the Green, published in 1936. She pokes fun at her sister and brother-in-law's political views. She would later write to British authorities about how dangerous she thought they were, and the Mosleys were kept in internment camps for part of World War II. It's a good thing the Brits don't have Thanksgiving, because that might have made it awkward. <laughs> Rewinding back to World War I, Kristen Scott Thomas reveals at the dinner table that Michael Gambon was a war profiteer. This references a major governmental concern. A Fortune magazine article, Arms of the Man, from March 1934, reported on how the real winners of the wars were the companies that sold to the fighting forces. I've got a snippet of this article. Uh, can I read it in the 1930 radio presenter voice, please? I'm not sure I can stop you. Perfect. According to the best accountancy figures, it cost about $25,000 to kill a soldier during the World War. 
There is one class of big businessmen in Europe that never rose up to denounce the extravagance of its governments in this regard, to point out that when death is left unhampered as an enterprise for the individual initiative of gangsters, the cost of a single killing seldom exceeds $100. The reason for the silence of these big businessmen is quite simple. The killing is their business. As a 1937 article written by William O. Scruggs in Foreign Affairs notes, the Fortune magazine article got partially reprinted in the congressional record, and this spurred investigations by both the U.S. and the British governments. The British investigation definitely was not as rigorous, but the U.S. one fully scrutinized the armaments industry and found specific examples of companies selling weapons and gear to other countries in violation of treaty protocols after World War I was over. And profiteering wasn't just a scandal because how much money they made, but also because of the quality control. For example, the owners of the Canadian Ross rifle firm got paid $18 million for weapons that malfunction in trench warfare, and it took a lot of effort to get these rifles switched out for different companies at the expense of human lives. So all of this war profiteering did enable a certain level of luxury and material comfort, but it's a quirk of British society at this point that while the downstairs set are obviously in somewhat cramped, not exactly comfortable conditions. The upstairs crowd aren't really all that comfortable either. Throughout the movie, the servants are shown hauling hot water bottles to the rooms just to keep the guests' beds warm. And in one scene, Maggie Smith is bundling up in furs in her own room. The book, To Marry an English Lord, talks about how keeping up these stately homes was extremely expensive, and adding modern conveniences was even more so. The solution to this was for cash-poor British nobles to seek out rich American heiresses as an easy way to get the money needed to keep their estates running. These women who marry into the British aristocracy from America are known as the Buccaneers. Should have seen that coming. Um, Obviously, Cora Crawley in Downton Abbey is a buccaneer, but also Winston Churchill's mother was actually a buccaneer herself. She's American-born and marries into the family of the Duke of Marlborough. And when the then Prince of Wales, who would become Edward VIII, first met his future wife and fellow Nazi sympathizer Wallace Simpson in 1931, he asked her how she was doing without the central heating that was much more common in the U.S. than in the U.K., Apparently, she wasn't too amused by this joke, didn't stop her from, you know, everything that came after. But in Lucy Worsley's excellent book, If Walls Could Talk, An Intimate History of the Home, she talks a lot about the economics behind all of this. She makes the point that, at least before World War I, the incredibly low cost of labor made it way cheaper to simply pay staff to carry all the water that was required to every bedroom to keep everybody clean and sweet-smelling. After the war, that calculus changes when labor costs rise, but even as the family's bedrooms begin to get plumbing, the staff bedrooms often got their own plumbing decades later than the family, as we see from Emily Watson, the maid's chamber pot under the bed. And I do really recommend the Lucy Worsley book. It's excellent and goes much deeper into a lot of these changes. So now the big question, how many cloche hats? I'm going to go with 4.5 cloche hats. I love how intricate the movie is with so many subplots running at the same time, and we definitely didn't cover all of them for the podcast. And there's so many little nods and references to the mores of the time, uh, whispers, as I referred to it earlier. 
Uh, for example, Fellows is able to work in hints about gay representation with the blink-and-you'll-miss-it two-line discussion about Ryan Fleep not risking coming up to Morris Weissman's bedroom at night. Side note, Ivor Novello was gay in real life as well, and he even uh, faintly alludes to women's choice over motherhood. Since Gosford Park is basically the first conceptual draft of Downton Abbey, it makes sense that Fellows sheds light on both the gay experience and women's reproductive rights in more detail in the show. But I also love just how many well-known British actors there are, such as one of the many loves of my life, Richard E. Grant. Ew. How dare you! <laughs> and finally, as I've mentioned before, I am a British murder mystery fanatic, and my life's goal is basically to live out the old Edward Gorey illustrated sequence to PBS's mystery program. I think Helen Mirren is looking to kill again. <laughs> the only reason I'm not going with a full five stars is that the movie... It's a bit long. So as Laura started off this episode by knowing, this movie is very tightly drawn. Every single word in the script communicates something important. And when I first started watching, I thought there wouldn't be that much to talk about. As it turns out, we have had a metric ton to talk about, and this episode could easily be twice as long. I noted, in fact, I wrote it down on a notebook, like the nerd that I am, <laughs> that in a murder mystery that runs about two hours and 15 minutes, the murder actually happens at exactly one hour and 19 minutes. Everything that precedes that is establishing character and building tension and making lots of excellent points about the British class system and country house life, and it does all of those things extremely well. I will say that that economy of words goes a bit too far, because I also spent most of this movie trying to figure out who the heck everyone is, and I never really fully accomplished it. All of the upstairs men who are not Albus Dumbledore or Hollywood adjacent run together in a jumble for me. And the women in the downstairs staff are a little clearer, but only by comparison. I don't really fully get who anybody is except maybe the three mains. And it's difficult to figure out subtle character traits and motivations when you don't know who anyone is. I like a movie that takes effort to watch, but I will definitely have to sit down with this one a few more times with a character map in hand and IMDb open, and on that basis, I am awarding it for cloche hats. So finally, a few sundry other points. You may have seen this, you probably didn't, but in the scene where Ryan Philippe is trying to force himself on Kelly MacDonald, they show a logo on the belt of his pants, and it says something like Fox Films Property or something like that. And uh, Fox Film Studio did make the film Charlie Chan in London that gets referenced in the 30s. Right after I watched Gosford Park this past time around, I immediately watched this other movie. The character of Charlie Chan was meant originally to counter negative stereotypes of Asian people. However, like many slash most old depictions of people of color, it too reads as pretty problematic by modern standards. In part, uh, Charlie doesn't ever get played by real Chinese actors. That would be an issue, yes. Anyway, I got pretty distracted watching this movie, but basically it's a murder mystery. It takes place in an English country house during a hunting weekend, and it features both upstairs and downstairs characters. Definitely comes across as upholding stereotypes and tropes that Americans have of England, such as medieval-looking country estate having lots of old-timey swords and battle axes all over the walls, servants all having really bad Cockney accents, and Morris Wiseman in Gosford Park references to maids and butlers riding around with Cockney accents and, oh, the butler is the one that did it. It uh, turns out in Charlie Chan in London, uh, the butler is actually a secret British agent who's been trying to track down the killer. Gives Helen Mirren. 
<laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about filming locations. The bedroom scenes where a huge amount of the action takes place were all shot at Scion House, which history lovers will know has a lot of interesting backstory of its own. The site of the present-day Scion House was originally the medieval Scion Abbey, a nunnery that was shuttered in the dissolution of the monasteries, an event which I have an enormous chip on my shoulder about. And so many feelings. Inappropriate amount of feelings. So the Abbey was used to house Queen Catherine Howard before she was transferred to the Tower of London for her execution. That would be Henry VIII's fifth of six wives. The property is also where Lady Jane Grey was living when she was proclaimed queen. Along the way, the Abbey was rebuilt into a house in the Italian Renaissance style, which has been remodeled several times. Today, it's the London residence of the Duke of Northumberland, who keeps it open for tours. And you can see in public photos from the tour that the bedrooms were used pretty much as is for filming. They also filmed scenes at two other country houses, Rudham Park and Hull Barn, which are way less historically significant and therefore much less interesting to me. And they filmed the downstairs scenes on a soundstage, which is pretty typical for a film set in this era. Another little side note. Uh, in the great scene where Ryan Philippe gets hot coffee deliberately spilled all over his lap. That was so good. And Maggie Smith loved it. At least her character did. She's shown uh, reading a magazine called Country Life. This is loved by the country gentry and agricultural enthusiasts. It's still in publication today. I believe both Prince Charles and Princess Anne have done guest editing jobs with it. It's very fitting for the characters to be reading this in the movie, and it is one of my favorite magazines. It definitely is one of her favorites, because she once made me run all over London to find a copy for her. She did that while I was on my honeymoon. Priorities! So, finally, our count of actors that show up pretty frequently in movies that we're watching for this podcast— Jeremy Swift is back with his second appearance. He is again in Servant's Livery. Michael Gambon also chalks up his second appearance. It's also fun to note that in the cast of this movie are three women who have played Queens of England, Helen Mirren, Emily Watson, and Eileen Atkins, all of whom play servants here. And it's really funny when they interact because at various times they have played the current Queen Elizabeth, her mother, the Queen Mum, and her mother-in-law, Queen Mary of Tech. So this movie is like a little secret family reunion for the House of Windsor. And if any of these ladies are listening to this podcast, as they surely are, please get in touch to tell me what that was like. Next time on Costume Drama Rewind. Captain, we've got whales, sir! Ugh. Sorry, I needed to get a Star Trek joke in there for my mom. Yeah. Hi, Mom. Next week, we're taking on one of Laura's favorites, In the Heart of the Sea, based on Nathaniel Philbrick's book of the same name. Join us next week and check out our show notes at CostumeDramaRewind.com. Thanks for listening. Music